Deborah Craddock, a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we will be speaking with Bill Shopoff. Bill is the CEO and founder of Shopoff Realty Investments. Bill is an avid cycler, a golfer, an LGBTQ activist, an amateur cook, a father, and a husband. Let's find out how Bill became the American business maverick that he is today. How's it going, Bill Shopoff? It's outstanding today. Thanks for having me here. So happy you're here with us. Where are you originally from? So I was born in Corning, New York, which is Western New York and actually grew up in a, in a suburb of Corning, Painted Post, New York. And I lived there till I was five. Why did I think you were from Texas? Because I spent a long time in Texas. I'm an, I, I identify with being a Texan. I moved there when I was five and lived there for many, many years. Who did you grow up with? Well, my mom and dad, we had a, we had a kind of very nuclear family. My mom and dad, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked, I had three older brothers. What was that home life like? You know, it felt uh, pretty normal, maybe a little bit leave it to beaverish. Uh, We had a very set routine. We ate dinner at a certain time. My dad came home from work. He had his martini. Uh, We had a, you know, we had a meal. We all sat together for, for dinner. My mom had kind of a certain menu, you know, on Friday nights, we, we were raised Catholic. And so Friday nights, we had our fish and, you know, certain nights we had different things. And it seemed pretty normal to me, maybe because it was kind of normal. We grew up together, we hung out together. And, you know, my mom and dad were very much about uh, being about family. And it's extended to the way we live our life today, because we're about family. We still you know, have relationship with almost all of our all of our siblings and almost all of our nieces and nephews. What did your father do? What was his career? So my dad was a finance and accounting executive. Uh, when he was in New York, when we lived in Corning, he worked for there was two two businesses in town, and one was Corning Glassworks, which many people have heard of, and then the other was Ingersoll Rand, which is where he worked, and he left there you know, just quit one day because they wanted him to do something that he thought was immoral and unethical and illegal and uh, had no job and four children, including one in college and called a guy that he knew who had left uh, Corning Glassworks and moved to Dallas, Texas. And so in 1962, my dad moved us to Texas. So would you consider it was a happy upbringing? Yeah, generally, but there were moments. I mean, my mom and dad, uh, 
fought a bit. They probably drank a little bit too much from time to time. So there were, there were moments that it was um, less pleasant than others. But I would say, generally speaking, I felt like I was parented pretty well. I felt like my mom and dad both loved me, even though they did it in their way. Uh, my dad was very autocratic, both in the way he did business and the way he managed our home life. But he'd mellowed, I think, by the time, you know, I was the last of four sons. And I think he'd mellowed by the time I got around. So were both your parents educated people? Uh, my dad, my mom, my mom went through high school in the first year of college and my dad was college educated. He, they met at the University of Michigan and my dad um, went off to World War II. They met and married and he left for the war. Uh, and so my mom never finished college. Did you see any post-traumatic stress from what he did in the army? You know, he didn't talk much about it. That's like, you know, a sign. And I remember until late in his life, you know, my mom always wanted to go on a cruise and my dad said, I went on my cruise and it was a troop carrier to the Pacific theater. And when you were growing up sitting around that dinner table, were politics discussed or did politics play any role in your home? You know, politics were, you know, minimally discussed. We weren't a big political family. Actually, I had three brothers who were trying to not go to Vietnam. And so, you know, there were conversations then and there were certainly, you know, I can remember my mom talking about Richard Nixon, not in a favorable way. Uh, you know, she used the, the, the tricky dick, uh, you know, uh, moniker for, for Richard Nixon. So they always voted and they didn't always vote the same. Frequently, they canceled out each other's vote. He probably was a little bit right-leaning, and my mom was probably, you know, a little bit center-left in some things. My mom was Irish Catholic, so we went to church with my mom growing up. So what do you then consider yourself with religion? Uh, I consider myself to be spiritual, but not really religious. So does religion play a role in your political perspective at all today? I would say not really. You know, we, we still have some of the traditions, you know, Easter's a big holiday for us, but not, a, not as much about the religion, but about the tradition, about spending time with, uh, you know, our kids and our, you know, my parents. How did you arrive at your political perspective today? You know, I have been all over the place um, on politics because probably younger, I was probably more democratic leaning at, at points in my life. I've been more Republican leaning, but never far right, but, you know, center right. I, I would say today, you know, if I were really to look at a measuring stick, I'm probably libertarian when you really come down to it. Uh, I, I tell people I'm an equally equal opportunity party hater today uh, because I think neither party is doing a very good job of representing us. Are you taking into consideration the social environment around us or the financial benefits for corporations? I'm trying to take a balanced approach. I, th I think social is incredibly important. Over the last several years in the current Supreme Court we have, people have lost liberty. We've, we've gone backwards in the last several years. Uh, after, after a very long, you know, decades long fight to get privilege for people, and it wasn't really to get privilege, it was just to get what they were entitled to. 
I'm, I'm a great believer that all men are created equal, and I mean men equals all people are created equal. Uh, when it was written, it was really only men, but I'm a believer that we're all uh, should be seen in the same light, whether we're uh, black, brown, white, whether we're rich or poor. And so that's one that uh, I try to look at and I try to measure when I'm thinking about who the leadership of the, of the country should be or of our, our communities. But it doesn't have me always leaning to the left because I don't think that I don't think that government works without understanding economics. And, and I think that you can look at some things that have been done lately that, you know, in, in Los Angeles, they, they passed this measure ULA and it's a tax on, on real estate transfer. And they call it the mansion tax because that would be more popular because if we tax only rich people, taxes are good and you can get poor people to vote for taxes. But it wasn't only rich people. It's, it's all businesses because it, it impacts retail shopping centers. If you sell a retail shopping center, if you sell an office building, sell an apartment building. Well, if I get taxed as a landlord, then I have to pass that on to my customer. And that could be a small business owner. That's going to be tenants in an apartment building. Do you then have to carve off a bit of your uh, territories for affordable housing? We do affordable housing. And there's there's two types of affordable housing in the industry. We would call it, you know, capital A affordable housing, which is government rent-restricted programs. And then we call little a affordable housing, which is just doing housing that, you know, I call it workforce housing. And we're involved in both. When you come into an area, do you find that there is homeless people living in the property or on the grounds? And what do you do to help these displaced people if that is the case? We've had occasions where people have been residing on, you know, some of the vacant properties that we have, but it's not that frequent. We have a big heart in our household about people experiencing homelessness. You know, there's a couple of things that impact it. Mental health, addiction are part of it, but it's not the it's not the sole reason. The other reason is we live in a very expensive place, but it's not just that because this condition has moved to across the country. You can go to places that theoretically have more affordable housing. They're still having people experiencing homelessness. They're one paycheck away from getting tossed out of the system. And it's hard to get back. We're very involved with the Friendship Shelter. And, you know, I think they're they're really focused on putting a roof over their people's heads. And I know that you and your wife are very involved with outreach in the community and the surrounding neighborhoods. The Friendship Shelter, for those of you out there who don't know, rehabilitates people, gives them a hand up, not a hand out. I believe they have to put some sweat equity into that and they have to be moving forward and ambitious to change their lives. That's a beautiful thing. I know you're involved also with the Laguna Food Pantry. So we thank you for all that you do for the community. I want to get back to how you became who you are today sitting with me. Who were your role models growing up? I mean, clearly my mom and dad and my older siblings uh, were, were the beginnings. Uh, I, I looked at what they were doing. I looked at my dad, who was, a, my dad's the son of an immigrant tailor. He and his brother were the first people in that family lineage to go to college. My mom and dad taught us an incredible work ethic. You know, I started a lawn mowing business when I was 12 years old. And I had this rotary mower that my dad had because we had a little bit of yard. And, so we didn't have a gas-powered mower. 
And uh, I tried to mow like an acre of St. Augustine grass in Texas in the summertime. And my blisters had blisters and my friends were making fun of me. They're like, you should have just quit. And I was like, we don't quit at our house. This isn't, that's like a thing that I've learned from early on. I knew from, you know, my mom and dad that, you know, I, I had a path and, and I tried to rebel against that path for a moment because I actually have an undergraduate degree in marine biology, was headed to graduate school and, and had a epiphany and decided to go back to business school and, and, and really follow that path that I was already on, you know, and, and the family was kind of geared toward. Do you feel you would have become who you are today without college? For me, that's impossible to, 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 to break apart because there are things that I learned in college but I think college is mostly about learning how to think. I, I think it's, it's, it's to be an independent thinker. I learned some finance and some other things that are, you know, I use in my day-to-day -day life, but I've refreshed that over time. But I think college is useful for some people, but it's not essential to be successful in life. In fact, I'm counseling a lot of young adults that I don't think they should be going to college. And I don't think they should be going into debt to go to college. So did you end up leaving college with a lot of debt? I left college with $5,000 of student loan debt, and I didn't even use that for college. I used that to uh, invest in the stock market. And I learned a very valuable lesson because I made a ton of money and lost it all and owed the debt back. College gave you the foundation, it sounds like, that you needed. But I agree that it's not for everyone. I know a lot of people who've made success. They've just had that burning desire and this innate yearning to be successful and they worked all kinds of odd jobs until they found their the one that they you know really got traction with um so ambition i think ambition is the key what was the first door that opened for you after you uh, got out of college and and what was that career path initially post-college i've always been in real estate in fact i got my real estate license while i was in getting my mba at the university of texas a friend of mine said, hey, this might be a good part-time gig and, you know, you, you could take a couple classes and you could probably go pass the test. And I went down to go take the real estate salesperson's exam and the woman behind the counter uh, looked at my resume or looked at my uh, transcript from college and she says, oh, you're, you have enough credits to go take the broker's license at the time. You didn't need a, uh, any sales experience and you didn't have, need to have time in the industry. Now you do. Um, and so I went and took a broker's license and became a broker right away and started selling and leasing houses. And then when I got out of college, I uh, got on my graduate program. I went out into the job market and I, f I got a couple of offers, but they were all less than I was making part-time in real estate. I never intended to follow a career in real estate, but I came right out of college and right into a real estate career uh, doing brokerage work primarily residential brokerage work, and then a little bit of small-scale development work. Did pretty well, became a millionaire in my 20s, lost it all before I was <laughs> out of my 20s. And, I've uh, heard this story before. And, I, and I started from scratch again. And I, I've told people, I said, you can take all my money, but you can't take what got me here. I'd rather they don't take all my money. I kind of am more comfortable with what I got today. Well, I've heard this, though, the story of successful men where they've made it briefly and then they had to remake it and then they really moved it forward. That's what happened to me and I kind of, I, I, I 
looked around and I looked for opportunity and I saw opportunity uh, in the darkness of the real estate market in the late 80s in Texas where everybody was getting foreclosed on, it felt like I figured out a way to capitalize on that and, and did so. Who's the most influential person in your life right now? Cindy Shopoff, my wife <laughs> and my partner and my beloved friend. That's uh, wonderful. Clearly, clearly the most influential person in my life. She keeps me uh, uh, on, on my you know, guiding principles. What are you feeling about our environment here in America, the political environment? Well, I, I think it's, look, we're, we have, a, in my mind, a very broken system. I have a, a gay son and a queer daughter. And it's important that my kids have the freedoms that have been granted to them over the last few years, and now they're being eroded. And so it's, it's uh, disconcerting to me. And so both your kids are part of the LGBTQ community. They are. And at which point did you realize that with your kids? With my son very early, like from early childhood. And how did you and Cindy, your wife, feel? How did you respond to that? Well, he came out when he was 15. We love our children and we, you know, as my mentor... My, my friend and mentor, Bill McCarley, said, you know, you you set out to raise independent, free-spirited, free-thinking children, and you've been successful in that. And so sometimes when, you know, they rebel against things that I would like them to be moving toward, um, I have to just think that, you know, I didn't ask them to be conventional growing up. My kids are awesome. Like, yes. They make me crazy sometimes, but my kids are awesome, and they're and they're moving through life on the path that they think is the right path for them. They're wonderful young adults and each very unique and fabulous in their own way. When you talk about rights, you're talking about the rights of the LGBTQ community and the rights of women. And I'm, I'm talking about the rights of women. I'm talking about the rights of those who don't have rights that should have rights, that we've watched rights be eroded in the last few years that we have, um, we have people sitting on the Supreme Court who are incompetent and probably corrupt and shouldn't be there. We have men who sit on the Supreme Court judging the lives of women who abused women. What's, what's wrong with our country that we think that's okay somehow? There's definitely a broken system right there. there. there there's, a, there's a broken system I think we need to do something about it. It's not to expand the court in my mind, but I do think we need we need term limits because I don't want 80 and 90 year old people making law for, you know, because it's not even making law for me anymore. They're making law who, for people who are 20 and 30. I feel that when we first met many, many years ago, you leaned more to the right. Do you feel that having kids of the LGBTQ community changed your position in politics? Well, it's had to because, it, you know, for me, because I have awareness because I'm because I'm awake. But it's also not just my children. It's it's, you know, that I have a lot of friends, you know, we're, we're dear friends with uh, our, our friend Lori Jean, who ran the for for many years, ran the LGBTQ Center in Los Angeles. And because of that, we have, you know, friends through them. Uh, you know, we went on a trip to Africa a few years ago and, you know, there were six couples and we were the only straight couple. 
I want to talk about just you, Bill Shopoff, your 40 years of real estate and investment experience now. You've had this company, Shopoff Realty Investments, for 30 years, and you're involved in numerous collegiate councils. So let's talk about 40 years of real estate and investment experience and how you then come to this 30-year company that you established. I spent my early stages in real estate brokerage and it moved from selling houses to selling small investment properties. We did a little bit of development work. Were you passionate about it? Was it? I, I liked the business. Uh, I liked that um, it gave me some freedom. It, it gave me an ability to make a good living initially. And, uh, you know, along the way, I decided I wanted more challenges. And there were two things that there were kind of two epiphany moments in my life. One was I, I, I sold a friend and client of mine an investment deal and I sold it to him for a million dollars. And before he closed, I resold it for $2 million. He made a million dollars with just putting up earnest money. And then he didn't want to pay me my commission. And we were just starting a new company. It was in January of 92. And he stiffed me on the commission. He owed us like 50 grand and he didn't pay me. Uh, my partner and I owed, owed us each 50 grand. And it was a lot of money then. Started a new business and, you know, I was like, you know, I looked at, I looked at my partner, Doug, and I said, we, could, we should just be doing this. We should be on the investment side, not the brokerage side. And then I was also doing a brokerage deal with a, with a well-known investor. And I ended up driving around properties in Austin. And he, he, at one point we ended up in my car by ourselves without his entourage. And this gentleman looked at me and he goes, why are you doing this? And I said, what do you mean? I'm going to sell you an apartment building and make a big commission. He goes, no, nah, you, you, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing what I'm doing. You should be on my side. You're way too smart to do this. And, and that was an epiphany moment. And I got together with another old friend of mine from, from college. And we started talking about starting a business. We had just started this new brokerage company. My friend Doug and I had. And... Then my friend Victor and I got together and we started talking about, hey, let's let's get involved in investing in, uh, you know, RTC, you know, loans and resolution what is that? resolution trust corporation. It was it was a company and business and entity that the federal government created to to resolve broken savings and loans back in the late eighties and nineties. I was like, that's a good idea. He goes, I got a, I got a friend of mine who came out of the banking industry. I'm in the finance business. You two guys are real estate. Let's put our heads together and start a business. And in May of 1992, the four of us put $250 each in the bank. And, uh, and that's the company that I own today. Well, actually next month will be our 31st year. What would you suggest to the young buck out there? You know, the young guy, girl, want to get into this industry. Where would you suggest that they start? Do they want to be, you know, on the investment side? Do they want to be on the brokerage side? Do they want to be in the capital markets? They'd be a debt broker. So there's there's a whole array of places where people can participate. Property management. So they figure out where they want to be. That doesn't necessarily mean where you're going to start. But what's your vision of of, of one's future? Um, now I will tell you, my vision of my future was never to be sitting here talking about what I've done. 
because that's that's beyond my wildest dream. Tell me about this being a member of this Global Energy Network International. Our acronym we call Genie, and that was based on is based on the 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 foundation uh, set forth by Buckminster Fuller, who was a great futurist. Uh, he, you know, he, he he created a lot of things that we're aware of today, uh, but he was just a forward thinker. And one of the things he put forth decades ago was there was a correlation between uh, the amount of electricity in a nation and the poverty rate. And so that's where the thought process started was we could we could figure out how to get more energy, more, po- you know, less poverty because you get refrigeration and running water and all those things. And so your, your life gets better. And look, I've been in the places, you know, I've been in Zimbabwe where the, the family members are walking, you know, five kilometers round trip to get water to their house. I, I imagine, you know, we, we have the luxury, we go do a workout, that's our walk. But to imagine that every day to be able to cook and brush your teeth and wash, you have somebody in that household has to walk, you know, some distance and carry, you know, I mean, five five gallons of water is 40 pounds. Imagine doing that every day. So so I got involved in this with my friend Peter Meissen many years ago, and, and we still support them. Uh, but then I got involved with through some friends about a decade ago uh, in a biofuels business because I'm, I'm a believer that... Um, Something's happening to our climate. I tend to think it's what we're doing as mankind, but but as I even argue with my my conservative friends and say, imagine that even if it wasn't man causing it, if man could solve it, shouldn't we? Right. Like what, the cause of it's really unimportant anymore. We just have to go solve it because it's not solving it. It's not going to be fine for our children, and if we're lucky enough to get grandchildren, our grandchildren are certainly our friends' grandchildren. And so we, we got involved. Some friends of mine got me involved in it, and now we're, uh, we're working on uh, we're producing uh, low-carbon fuels, gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. And jet fuel is really our big focus. Is, uh, it's, it's a vast business. So it's a clean energy? It's a clean energy. We, we produce, uh, we manufacture a jet fuel that's low carbon to no carbon. And is that being used yet, this jet fuel? It's not yet being used, but it will be in the next year or so. I'm just right now stunned at how fast we're moving and and, and the fact that I think we can truly make a change. As I, as I describe the business to people, it's a business, a little bit like the affordable housing business, it's a business we can both do well and do good. You are one of the top fundraisers and riders, cyclers that is, for 20 years with the AIDS life cycle. What is your passion for that and why that cause? You know, I got exposed to it. I literally, I wasn't cycling when I moved to California 22 years ago. And one of my brothers said, hey, let's let's do a brother's bike ride. I guess I need to go buy a bike. That'd be a good starting point. So I, I went to the local bike shop <laughs> and I bought a bike. But when I was in there, there was a flyer for the AIDS life cycle. And I couldn't go the, partic- the first year, but I grabbed the flyer anyway. And I thought, well, this would be fun to do sometime. 
I, I went and I actually convinced my oldest brother and his brother-in-law to come ride with me the first year, which had been, I guess, 21 years ago. And we had to raise some money and then go ride. At the time, it was 575 miles. I think they've shortened. I think it's 545 miles now. I rode, and on the second day of the ride, the first year I did the ride, I got hit by a car in a hit-and-run accident, fractured my clavicle, and, uh, you know, went to the hospital, got out, and I was like, well, what do I do? And I was like, well, I could go home. And I was like, I don't want to go home. I'm going to stay on the ride. And so I just, I became a roadie, and I just volunteered, like, at the massage tent to, to check in people. And I said, I want to experience this. And after I experienced it for the week, I was like, this is something that I can get in touch with. These are, these are really cool people coming together for a cause for a week. Um, you know, they call it when you get together for the week, they call it the love bubble. It's kind of this very cool environment. And so I've been involved and I've been, I, I, think, I think I am and remain the, the top fundraiser over the entire history of the ride. And although not every year do I ride, every year I raise money. And, uh, and I've been fortunate enough to be supported by, you know, friends and business associates, people like yourself. Um, I think one of the coolest things out of it, uh, candidly, Debbie, is, is uh, almost every year I get a donation from somebody who I hit up somebody in the business world and they say, you know what, I lost a brother, I lost a sibling, I lost a best friend, and I never could talk about this to anybody. So... so that's like one of the great gifts of that. And the money goes to research. It's co-sponsored by uh, the LA LGBT Center and the uh, San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And they're partners in that uh, venture. And it's about 2,500 cyclists every year um, riding down the California coast. It's a pretty cool event. So, if And you, have you yourself experienced a loss of anyone you knew I, or loved to AIDS? I, I have. So I, you know, before I became aware, you know, my brother, my oldest brother and his wife were living in San Francisco. So they lost friends, you know, some of their friends were the earliest death to AIDS. And so I was aware of it, you know, from an early age. And then, um, you know, living in Austin, we, we started to lose some friends. Um, and it was tragic. In fact, a couple that lived a couple doors down from us when we lived at the lake, they passed and, you know, separately, but we were selling residential real estate at the time. So we listed their house for the estate to sell it and it needed a new septic system. So here you are, you're hiring people that spend their life literally digging and shit. <laughs> and one of the neighbors told them that one of the guys died of AIDS and they were like, we're not working on this. That's how bad the stigma was. Mm. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you're willing to work with fecal matter, but you weren't gonna be willing to do this. And that's when you realized how messed up the world was. So from the AIDS life cycle, you got involved with the LGBTQ Center in Los Angeles? Yes, so I, you know, because they were co-sponsor, we got exposed to it. And then I, you know, over time, uh, as I became a bigger and bigger fundraiser, they paid more attention to me, and so uh, one day years ago, the uh, uh, the head of the of the of the center, uh, my friend Lori Jean, came down to have lunch with me. I didn't really know her at the time, and I said, you know, it was a she she tells the story better than I do, but you know, I had the uh, 
the head lesbian from Los Angeles coming down across the orange curtain to have lunch <laughs> with, you know, the, the slightly right-leaning uh, uh, real estate guy. And she was like, what am I doing here? And I was probably saying the same thing. And we've turned out to become fast friends. And we've kind of turned out to be big supporters of the, of the center. Uh, when they built the a new building, they asked us to be on the capital campaign committee. And, and, and Cindy and I decided to make a, a, what we thought was a pretty sizable contribution. Uh, and, and it's for the youth housing center that they built as part of that project. What is the number one issue that concerns you about our country today? If you had to pick one issue that worries you most, what is it? We're at a pivotal moment in the history of our republic. And I, I don't think we're on a decline. There are some people who think we are, but we are, but we could be if we chose the wrong pathway here. I think I think technology and education may be the most important thing because I, I think that we have a we, we got people who are educated and are gonna be the haves, and we got people that are not following an education path. And our education system is very broken. And, and, and by the way, it leads to also some of these other issues we have because they don't have the same exposure. They don't have the same rights. And so they, be, they you know, they follow a path of poverty and maybe crime. Um, so I, I, I would just say, I think we have to figure out how to educate people. I, I think we're failing people in our grade school and high school. Uh, and, you know, I think we've given up trade schools and we should have trade schools again because I, I think people need to learn a craft. But I think we're, we're, we're on a cusp of something that's really uh, could be remarkable with artificial intelligence. But it's going to take jobs from people, not take jobs. But it's going to do the job that people didn't do. Uh, and it's not just manual jobs. It's literally, you know, that we're using it in our company. We use it to write ad copy. You know, because you can you can use Chat GPT to do things that you know it's remarkable what it's doing today, and it's nothing of what it's going to do. Um, but I think it will create jobs too in a different arena because it, someone has to build and and you know create the infrastructure. It, it clearly will, but those people have to have education, right. and and that's what's happening now with this money gap in the country, is that technology. If you can use technology, you're going to earn more. And, and so I'm, I'm just a, a beneficiary of that because I, I, I get to do more in real estate because I use technology. What I used to be able to do, you know, a little bit of real estate, I couldn't do it all over the country, couldn't be in all these different markets, but I can buy data that allows me to be intellectually capable to invest my money across a broad array of places. And so, you know, I think those are great benefits, but they're creating this, this divide of the haves and have nots. And I think we need to put a safety net, but we still have to figure out how to bring these people up and give them purpose in life. And do you feel this industry will be more a university style education or do you think it would be more of a trade school or a specific training, you know, like a specific job training? Some of it's so intellectual that it's 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 college. It's it's college, it's it's these people computer are computer science and all they're that. coming out of computer science. They've got PhDs. They're these people are very intellectual. Um, you know, I think of myself as a bit intellectual, and then I talk to my friends in the technology industry, and I don't feel very smart. It's uh, a specific side of the brain. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. But I, but I think that you know we'll, we'll get there. But I think, I think we've got to. We're trying to educate people with an educational system that's that's you know a century old or more. And I think we're going to have to shake up our, our 
way that we educate people so that, that, that young adults, kids want to be educated so that they're not, not going to school. Right. Um, and they're, and they're figuring out how to, how to survive in a world that could otherwise pass them by. Well, speaking of trade schools, my dad, and, and we, we, we talked about, I have a, a biological, I had a biological father and then I had an adopted father. So I have two dads. I was the beneficiary of two dads. And um, anyways, I, I know in when my dad was growing up, the biological dad, he was growing up during the depression and his father was at a loss with what to do with the boys. And at some point he put both of his young men in different branches of the military because in the military, you could learn a trade. And that's what my dad said. I went to learn how to become an airplane mechanic. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. So I guess there is that option, is to seek out the military and, and get somewhat of an education there as well in the trade arena. But we absolutely need those guys who are fixing our plumbing. And I mean, I give, I give value to anybody who gets up every day and works hard. So to me, it's not it's not your paycheck at the end of the day that I value. It's your work ethic. So well, I'm, I'm in line with you well, on that well, one. I, I tell people, it, if it was about working hard that leads to success, there's a lot of people who work hard. I work long hours. I'm maybe a little bit compulsive or obsessive about it. But I think that anybody who's done well, you know, in business and life, there's a little bit of good fortune. You know, you want to call it luck. You know, call it luck of the Irish, because I got a little bit of Irish in me. But it's 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 a uh, it's it's good fortune meeting preparedness, and uh, and you just then the cards hopefully fall your way. And you know, everybody's definition of success is very different. So oh, oh absolutely. Fun. I mean, in my my mind, I mean, I, I can talk about business success, and that's one thing, where you know that's a balance sheet, and I and that's fairly easy to measure. Uh, I spend a lot of my time thinking about my success I have in my relationship with my wife and my children and my friends. That's a whole different measuring stick. But I, I think it's uh, and, and that's not like how many people I got on Facebook. Like that's not because I got more people on Facebook than I have friends. I can guarantee you. <laughs> um, but I think it's about having real relationship with real friends. And I think that's where, you know, one's life feels the most full. You know, at the end of the day, the money I make from this point forward in my life, it's all going to other people anyway, <laughs> and not and not children. It's going to it's going to charity. Right. Uh, I'm not I'm not leaving my children, you know, all this money. I'll, they'll 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 be comfortable. They'll be okay, but I don't think they they a, they don't want it today, and I think it's probably a burden more than a help at some level. Yeah, sometimes it is, isn't it? Um, okay, so I'm grateful that you're my friend, and I'm so grateful that you came here and honored that you came to talk to me and share your story. I usually close with about two more questions. The first of the two is, what do you most hope for the future of America today? Uh, I would hope for an America where the extremes can be heard, but still come together. The belief that we're, we are, we are one of the greatest republics, greatest nations, but we are comprised of, of people with differences, not similarities. And I would, I would wish the people could identify more with the differences than just seeking out those who are the same as them. 
I agree. If you were to share with our listeners a cause, a charity, a website, is there anything that you'd like to share that's close to your heart? Well, because it's, it's, it's local, I'd probably say the uh, um, Friendship Shelter here on Laguna Beach. They're doing really good work, and they do it with a pretty meager amount of tools. Uh, the, the amount of funding they get is, is less than what I'd like to see them have. And, uh, and I think their staff has uh, got their heart in the right place and, uh, you know, working hard to bring people up and give them a better life. All right, guys. So Google Friendship Shelter of Laguna Beach. If you are considering any kind of contribution or support, that would be a great place to put it. And I'm going to thank Bill Shopoff for being here today. It's Again, an honor and a privilege to have you here and to have you as my friend. So thank you for being here, Bill. Well, I'm pleased to be your friend and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, support you in this endeavor and happy to share my story. This episode of Democratic was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so.